Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest insights, news and discoveries from researchers and academics at the University of Glasgow's College of Arts. Today, we're joined by Dr. Gareth Beale, a lecturer in digital archaeology at the University of Glasgow. Gareth's background is in archaeological computer graphics and archaeological visualisation. His research concerns the development and experimental application of creative digital media practices in an archaeological setting. Today, Gareth's going to be sharing how he uses modern digital technologies to connect to the distant past. He's going to introduce us to the ways in which he and colleagues were able to bring Viking camps and York Jail to life for visitors using those very technologies. And if that's not enough, we're also going to look to the future too and talk about the potentials that these digital technologies will continue to have in helping archaeologists to unlock the past and heritage sites for visitors. Hello, my name is Gareth Beale. I'm a lecturer in digital archaeology at the University of Glasgow. My research looks mostly at how we use interactive digital media within archaeology and museums. So for our listeners who might not be familiar with or associate archaeology with digital research and technology, can you tell us a little bit more about what that entails and maybe what it was that sparked your interest into going down that that route? Yeah, of course. So archaeology, you're right, we tend to associate it with the study of the past and old things. It's an interesting discipline in the sense that there's a lot of modern technology throughout archaeology. Actually, it's a sort of a, often at the forefront of various kinds of scientific innovation with uh, more conventionally scientific things like dating technologies and all of that side of things, but also digital technology, which is what I look at. So Archaeologists use digital technologies throughout archaeology for things like geophysics, which some listeners may have seen on the TV, certainly in the uh, days gone by of Time Team and things like that. You'll have seen a lot of geophysics, increasingly the use of satellite imagery and stuff like that. So there's, there's a lot of that kind of science. But my research looks at the use of technology that comes from the media end of things. So talking about sort of Video games type technology, augmented reality, virtual reality, interactive television and things like that. So I'm really interested in how we can use digital technologies to tell stories about the past and help people to understand the past in new ways through the use of more creative approaches to the use of digital technology. I'll be honest, I'm very intrigued by VR and AR and video games here. So <laughs> yeah. was there anything that was were these kind of the things that drew you into this or was there something else? Yeah, so my experience of digital archaeology started very early on. So I did a an undergraduate degree in or began an undergraduate degree in philosophy and sociology. And I gradually drifted into archaeology while I was doing my undergraduate degree. And on the first excavation I went on, there was a a lot of digital stuff going on even back then in 2004 I think it was or even earlier than that and there was a lot of uh, digital surveying happening then and I met people on the excavation who ran a master's program at the University of Southampton in 3D computer graphics and archaeology. They were pioneers of this kind of technology and so I've been interested in 3D computer graphics for quite a long time for listeners who aren't familiar this is the sort of software and techniques that companies like Pixar use to make films but it's also the kind of technology that's used to make 
3D computer games. Relatively early on, actually, archaeology started using these kinds of techniques back in the late 1980s even, but certainly through the 1990s to produce visualizations of archaeological sites and archaeological material and to sort of imagine really what the past looked like. And this was very important, has been a very important part of archaeology ever since. Um, So I got into this uh, world of producing 3D interpretations of archaeological subjects. And this uh, initially tapped into a longer tradition of archaeological illustration and reconstruction drawings and paintings and things like this. But increasingly, as my time working on this has gone on, we've become more and more interested in how we can make these models interactive. So previously, it would have been just producing images for publications or producing short snippets of film to be shown on TV. But increasingly, with video games becoming so much of a bigger thing, and then the dawning of augmented reality and virtual reality, which we can talk about more later on if people aren't familiar with those technologies. We've seen much more demand for this kind of work and um, the kinds of technologies we've been using are just the kinds of technologies you need to produce experiences for these platforms. So it's it's all, it's all worked out very well in that sense. Archaeology as a discipline is quite well placed because I'm far from being the only person who does this kind of stuff. I'm intrigued and I'm excited to find out more. <laughs> One thing that you mentioned was that you could use this technology to enhance people's relationship with the past. What are the types of technology that are involved there and how, how do you how do you do it? I previously worked down at the University of York with this really mixed group of people at Digital Creativity Labs. And so we had a couple of archaeologists working there as well, but also people working in video game development, people working in computer science. We had people from sound engineering backgrounds, music backgrounds, all kinds of things, all working together to produce new kinds of digital media research. While I was working there, we came up with a shared research challenge, really, across digital arts, archaeology and computer science to work with colleagues from York Museums Trust to produce experimental installations for some of their exhibitions using augmented and virtual reality technologies. So for people who aren't familiar with these technologies, virtual reality, you might have seen people wearing funny headsets and kind of uh, reaching around to try and touch things that no one else can see. So this is a a form of an immersive experience where you have a mask and in the mask are two little screens, one for each eye. And it gives the impression of being inside a 3D environment. So that's the, the fundamentals of the technology. So it just looks like a computer game that you'd see on a screen, but it's as though you're immersed within it. Augmented reality is a slightly different technology whereby using a mobile phone or some other technology, we're able to overlay digital content onto the world around us. So perhaps by holding up a mobile phone in a museum, it might show you a label associated with whatever you're looking at, or you might be able to see some kind of animation or something. So our project was to use these technologies to provide new kinds of experiences within museums. So these technologies have been used before in museums in a highly experimental way. And so this wasn't the absolute cutting edge. But where we saw the research need was in producing experiences which blended seamlessly into the broader museum experience. Because museum curators exhibition designers and technical specialists who support them are really amazing storytellers using the medium they work in which is exhibition design 
And so what we didn't want to do as outsiders, as people working with digital technology, was go in and interrupt that and just say, you know, put loads of digital technology in the middle of it, but essentially disrupt people's experiences. People go to museums to do certain kinds of things. They go there because they want a certain kind of experience. That doesn't necessarily involve sitting down for 25 minutes and playing a computer game on their own because you're normally there with your family or you're normally there with your friends. You're wanting to have a social experience to talk about things. Our project was to look at how these technologies could be used to enhance that and to enable those kinds of experiences. And so hopefully give people a richer, more social more enjoyable experience of the past and allow them to see things they wouldn't be able to see otherwise. That's where we uh, started from. Coincidentally, when we started to think about this, York Museum's Trust were in the planning stages of an exhibition called Viking Rediscover the Legend in collaboration with the British Museum. And we approached them to see whether they would be willing to let us participate in the design of that exhibition and produce specific digital installations to complement and sit alongside the rest of this exhibition. And so that's where the DNR project started. It was with the Viking VR project, self-explanatory. We've covered the Vikings and the VR part of that. So it was uh, part of that exhibition. It was in its own room, just off the side of the exhibition. We produced a virtual reality experience, which was designed specifically to tell the story of Torxy, which is a major Viking archaeological site in coastal Lincolnshire. As someone from Yorkshire, I'm kind of like, yes, Viking. <laughs> okay. Um, so very excited about that. And you've kind of said how the sites were chosen, but out of curiosity, what was it like for you working with that? I'm biased, so I feel that's quite a rich archaeological base to be working in. Yeah, well, I mean, Viking archaeology is absolutely fascinating. And it's such a central component of the archaeology of York and that region so it was really wonderful to be able to work with that material and also really wonderful to be able to help some of those stories people are fascinated by the Vikings generally speaking I think we all are to a certain extent but they can also be quite invisible because it was such a long time ago and so when you're in York someone can tell you this was a a Viking city but it can be very difficult to understand what that means and whether what you're looking at today has any relationship to the Viking city. And York's very privileged with Jorvik, um, the Jorvik Centre, which is an amazing, uh, for anyone who hasn't been, I strongly encourage you to go. It's an amazing interactive museum or experience which tells the story of Viking life using animatronics and all sorts of uh, wonderful special effects but it's very privileged but still there are untold stories you know we we can only do so much there are always new stories to be told so we tackled this within the exhibition by using virtual reality headsets which we designed ourselves and built out of wood so they didn't look technological in the digital sense Uh, they uh, each had a mask on them so that when you picked up the virtual reality headset, your view would be a view into this archaeological site, Torxy, which was a, a camp of the Viking Great Army while they were travelling around raiding 
Britain at that time. It was a, a reconstructed Viking tent within which you would have these headsets placed on barrels and people could use each of the four different wooden headsets to view a different scene of Viking life. It was a way for people to get a sense of what that world would have looked like. And we worked with Viking archaeologists as well as with all of these technical specialists to make that happen. I didn't actually realise you'd made wooden headsets. That's <laughs> that's an amazing extra immersive level. Obviously, you're working with lots of other academics and practitioners. What was that experience like for you? Because it sounds like there were a lot of people involved in this. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, uh, this is absolutely key to me, absolutely central, which is that I think as um, researchers, as archaeologists working with these kinds of technologies, you cannot work in isolation because with the best will in the world there are very few people who are good at archaeology good at game design good at museum design good at sound design also have the time to run their own archaeological excavations to generate source data and have a story to tell in the first place this has to be a collaborative process if you're going to do it well and we know that's the case because people who produce films people who produce computer games people who produce any kind of media is always a collaborative process. You need skilled people working with you to make sure that every part of it works as it should. And as a university and as a research project, not just that it works as it should, but also that we're pushing the limits of how it works and that we're trying new things and that we're ensuring that everyone who participates in the project finds out something new or is able to experiment in a way they wouldn't have been able to do within the confines of a commercial project so it's pushing those limits and I think as universities that's what our responsibility is really otherwise we're just replicating work that could be done commercially which is uh, not what we should be doing yeah so collaboration absolutely key really ensures the value of the work and ensures that the work has an impact on archaeology our understanding of how we tell stories in an archaeological context but also on the research of the researchers who are collaborating in the project and the practice of the practitioners who are working within the project. So as an example, we worked with a sound designer on this project who wasn't a researcher, or they were a researcher previously, but they were working in a uh, commercial context now. And so they were able to use this project to experiment with different ways of doing things and different ways of working with immersive sound and things like that. So it was a really uh, great collaboration between university partners commercial partners and museums as well so three different sectors coming together to deliver the projects and I think that has to be the the future of this kind of work. Obviously you've talked about other people experimenting and learning was there anything you got to experiment with and learn from the projects that you perhaps didn't expect to? Yes something we talk about in arts and humanities research a lot is this idea of practice-driven research and I think that's really where I put myself and what practice-driven research means is that we think of researchers going off and reading books, conducting surveys, going out and doing original research and then coming back and doing interpretation and analysis and the way in which I do my research is to go out do something like design an installation or produce an exhibition or make a film. But through that process of doing, I'm able to understand this work more effectively. Think about how we could do it better next time. Think about new opportunities and avenues for research. And a concrete example of how that works is this project, because we started off, as I explained before, with this kind of central research question of how can these technologies be integrated into exhibition 
design and that was our core research challenge so that we could publish research papers which would help other people in the future from research backgrounds but also people help producing this stuff commercially understand what would work and what wouldn't work and how you could adapt the technology to be used in this kind of setting that's where we began but what I really took from this the thing that really inspired me about this project was watching the way in which people interacted with the installation so the museum visitors and the thing that really struck me about it was how people would step into this space this reconstructed viking tent and then pick up the mask and suddenly almost every person became a performer (laughs) and they put on the mask and they would be looking around them very unselfconsciously passing them to other people and pointing at things and there was this real physical interaction with the virtual environment but also with the real environment because the masks were very tactile things that people could hold and touch and they felt very nice and within the viking tent there were things to look at there were sounds to listen to so we embedded speakers into the walls and there was a an immersive sound world that they could step into and it was just interesting to see how how much people responded to that kind of Uh, environment and the excitement and playfulness that people exhibited when they were given those kinds of opportunities so that was the thing that really grabbed me and it's that sort of idea that digital technologies can be the thing which unlocks a more playful more engaged more physical interaction with the past than we have traditionally done through either museums or through different kinds of archaeological publication, be it through journals, magazines or television. It's just that it's a new way of interacting with the past. And that's uh, that's where my research has gone since this first project. I love that people are interacting with this in such a playful way. That sounds really joyful and it must have been really rewarding for you and the rest of the team to, to see and watch as well. Were there any particular responses from people that surprised you? What was the age range of the people that were using the masks and things in Viking VR? Very wide, very wide age range. Museums appeal to broad cross sections Mm -hmm. of society. And one of the things which um, was remarked upon by the people working in the museum was the extent to which the installation encouraged discussion between groups of people and they said that's a very difficult thing to do and I'm no expert in this but they told me that's a very difficult thing to do in museums is to get people who didn't arrive together to talk to each other and because the exhibition was unfamiliar in a lot of ways to people this isn't necessarily the kind of thing you'd expect to encounter there was hesitancy among with certain people because people weren't perhaps weren't confident with what was happening and the thing that we noticed was that people would help and I, I really liked that. So someone would walk in and maybe look a bit uncertain. Think, what am I looking at here? What do I do with this? But someone would always be there and say, oh, just pick that up and have a look. It's really interesting. Uh, I just saw this. That was a nice thing. That um, virtual reality, which we tend to conventionally think about as quite an isolating medium, because you put a mask on, so you're isolated from the world around you. But used in this way, it became a very social medium. And that was very unexpected. We had hoped it would happen, but we had no reason to think that it definitely would. And it did. It was one of the main characteristics of people's behaviour in that space, which was really nice. The other thing was 
it was the way in which people suspended their disbelief <laughs> and allowed themselves to imagine things. One of the critiques which I myself have made of digital representation of archaeology in the past is that it has a tendency to spell things out a little bit bluntly, <laughs> perhaps doesn't allow much room for imagination. Whereas in reality, when we gave people these face masks and they started to pick them up, they would very often see things that weren't there or tell us that they'd seen things that weren't there. We saw wolves and dragons occasionally, which was nice. <laughs> people would pick up on little details. I think we all recognise this. If you've been to the theatre before, there are other, there's a sort of distinct smell and a distinct sort of atmosphere in the theatre, which really adds to the experience. And something that people remarked upon, which I loved, I think this was my favourite thing about the whole project, was the smell of campfires inside the VR scene. And at first we wondered what this was, but then we realised that because the headsets have been made out of laser-cut plywood, there was a faint smell of burning on them. And people assumed that this was part of the experience. And I just thought this was such a, a nice accident, a very happy accident, but such a strong argument for this more physical way of building these kinds of experiences and not just relying on technology as you unpack it from the shop, but thinking about how you actually present it to people. So thinking about the whole theatrical experience of technology rather than just thinking about putting a games console in a room which might have been how we would have approached this previously so that was that was my favorite thing we jumped off from there really into that as next stages of the project and it was about exploring this theatrical staging of technology slightly more in a slightly more applied and deliberate way can you tell us a bit more about the next stage of the project? So that was working with York Jail? Yeah, so this was another branch of York Museum's Trust. So the first installation, Viking VR, was at the Yorkshire Museum. And then the second part of the project was at York Castle Museum. And anyone who's visited York will know where that is, because there's a big tower in the in the middle of York, Clifford's Tower, and it's right next to there. York Castle Museum used to be part of a prison complex up into the 19th century. The building that houses the museum is part of the prison. So in the lower levels of the building are preserved prison cells, which have always presented a challenge curatorially as to how to tell stories within those spaces. And they've tried all sorts of really excellent things. And they've films projected in there and there are various kinds of interpretation panels and digital interactives in there but the team at York Museums Trust were interested in how we might use these kinds of immersive technologies to help people to engage a bit more with these spaces and so building on what we'd done previously we thought because the Viking VR installation was completely theatrically staged in the sense that it was in a very artificial space. We built a Viking tent for it to go in. So nothing you were seeing or experiencing in that installation was to do with the building within which you were stood. Whereas in the within the walls of York Jail project, what we'd wanted to do was allow the building to tell its own story, but then just use digital technology to overlay that or to create a bit of interest or help people to start asking questions and to look at the building and to sort of think about the building in different ways. So it was to use a, a theatrical analogy in, in theatre, you have conventional theatre within 
theatres, but you also have site-specific theatre where someone will go and do a play in a warehouse or an office building or something like that, where that setting is integral to telling the story. And we sort of borrowed those ideas, really, to think about how, as archaeologists telling stories in digital media, we could do that, but we could do it within the building. And obviously a jail is a very compelling building in a lot of ways. So we designed two installations for that. One of them was an augmented reality experience using an iPad where you would hold an iPad up and it would insert furniture and objects into the cell within which you were stood, which would help to tell the stories of prisoners who had been in there so there was we sort of these sometimes we were, were very prosaic things like adding furniture into a room and you could walk up to the furniture and look at someone's possessions but sometimes they were a bit more surreal so you would have a little insight into the life of a prisoner where for example a window would appear in the wall and when you walked up to the window you'd be looking out of the side of a ship or something like this and you'd have acoustic audio overlays which would help you to understand what you were looking at so it was about the lives of prisoners. The other installation was in a smaller room and this was a uh, sound installation but it used the handsets from a virtual reality system and we modified those and turned them into torches And the experience in the end worked in such a way that you'd shine a torch on a wall. And whenever you shone the torch on a piece of graffiti, the room would begin to speak to you and would tell you a story. This was called whispering graffiti, which makes sense. And so it was about allowing people to find out about prisoners. And so we had audio performances by museum staff and other local people. Some of them were dramatic monologues which were written collaboratively by the performers and with the performers Uh, and some of them were historical accounts which were read and you could access this content but the interface for accessing this content was that you'd have to look at the room very carefully this room was full of graffiti and it was dark so you would shine a, a torch onto a piece of graffiti yeah and then it would start to speak back to you and give you a sense of what the lives of the prisoners were like both before they'd been imprisoned and during their imprisonment. So it was a, a a different way of accessing content, which to many people would always remain invisible. Because however much we open these kinds of collections up, people need a reason to go and access them. And, and this provided a uh, a way in for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so it was um, both of these examples were our attempts to try to make the building more visible to people through the use of digital technologies. Again, trying to enhance people's experiences of a historic environment rather than distract from it. What kind of responses did you get to these installations? A wide range. Inquisitive, overwhelmingly positive. I mean, I think people appreciated being given access to these stories, but they're not easy stories. And I think people felt a connection to the place which they might not have felt otherwise and it was often quite quite profound I mean it was um it was all very well thought through we did this in dialogue with museum curators and they helped us to think about the kinds of stories that we were telling and we didn't want to really you know upset anybody or to make anybody feel uncomfortable so these were opportunities for gentle reflection really rather than gruesome stories we definitely wanted to keep away from that kind of thing because that's kind of the cliche of these spaces that they were very brutal and um, unpleasant spaces which of course they were but there was a lot more to people who were imprisoned than that 
particularly given this was a time during which people were in prison for things which today would be extremely minor offences if they were offences at all. So we're not talking necessarily about people who would be considered criminals today. So yeah, a wide variety of responses. But I think the responses that struck me most were where people began to reflect, perhaps not for the first time, but certainly in a different way, on the significance of this building to their family histories. And when you started to expose some of those personal stories, people would find links and find connections with these people. You know, they'd come from the same town as somebody or they'd have had family living in certain parts of York or living in certain parts of Yorkshire who had been close to these things or they'd have heard stories at school which were about certain people who'd been imprisoned there. And it triggered a lot of these kinds of uh, reflective conversations and I think allowed people to develop or to express in that space more nuanced feelings about that space and the people who had been within it. So it was it was more, I'm going to be honest, it was a lot more complicated than Viking VR. And we're still really unpacking <laughs> the exact meaning of a lot of what we were able to find out. It definitely showed that the technology was capable of delivering very profound experiences as well as fun, straightforwardly playful experiences as in Viking VR projects. I like that from both of the two projects, you've had some very different responses and you've been able to elicit, like you say, the playfulness, but also the reflectiveness as well. Yeah. It definitely sounds a lot more meaningful, especially when you compare it to sort of like experiences, perhaps from both of our childhoods going to a space and there's just the plaque on the wall. And, yeah, yeah. And you don't get anything from that. But with this, you really, you are letting people interact with the history and get involved. And mm. I think there's something always magical about that. Well, I think the thing is, with this kind of technology, who knows if it's going to go anywhere? You know, we might not be using it in 10 years. We just don't know. But now it exists. It will always exist. And we are in the early stages of figuring out how to tell stories in these media. And I think it's really important that that task isn't left solely to game developers and commercial people doing this commercially and that the voices of people like museum curators exhibition designers are heard because they're already they already have all this expertise in storytelling and so they have a lot to input into these conversations but also the voices of people whose museums these are you know the communities within which they're based and I think um, we need to need to make sure that as we kind of figure out what these technologies are capable of all of that complexity comes through as well and that we don't just end up with standard sort of reductive ideas about what these technologies are and what they can be, because I think they have the potential to be a lot more. The idea of uh, VR games and augmented reality games, that's going to go up and down in ebbs and flows in terms of, you know, we have booms like Pokemon Go a few years ago, where these things become very in vogue. But I think what we did show through that research, which is hopefully will hopefully be enduring is that within a museum's context these technologies have a a very special place they can be used to do new things very effectively even if they don't find use elsewhere i don't think it necessarily matters museums are very very special places definitely <laughs> so what comes next for dina then is there anything that you're hoping to take from phase two with york jail and move forward into something else 
I can say I can only say so much about this because it not because I'm uh, I've got any <laughs> secrets, but because it's only half uh, half developed at the moment. It's still a, a work in progress. But the next stage of the uh, research I'm doing in this area is to look at how these kinds of technologies can be helped to enable people to interact with archaeology on a landscape scale. So we started in our Viking tent with Viking VR doing theatrical things and then moved into using the technology to help people to understand historic environments within which they were stood. And that then led to my interest in, okay, if we can do that inside a building, can we do it outside a building? Can we do it on a landscape scale? So the next step of the project will be to design different kinds of immersive experiences which can help us to understand landscapes which perhaps aren't easy to interpret and analyze perhaps they've changed a great deal over time how can we explore the past how can we explore that depth of time as we move through a landscape so in effect using landscapes as interfaces for immersive digital experiences so what kind of technology would that potentially involve would you be recording sound would there be film involved yeah i think this i i mean i think I think this is a a wide open horizon in terms of research, to be honest with you, because it's a relatively new use for these kinds of technologies. And we've been looking at various things. One thing we have been looking at over the past few months since lockdown and not being able to travel much for research has been how we can design experiences which can help people to interact with archaeological landscapes in different ways, but also how we can involve people in that design process so all through the dnr project with viking vr and uh, within the walls of york jail we had different groups involved in the design process all the way through from museum and museum visitors teachers all kinds of people from the communities within which we were working so we, we call that participatory design or co-design these are both words for this kind of process and it it is a collaborative process when you work in that way but what I'm really interested in with this next stage of the project is how you can actually get people producing this stuff for themselves so one of the things that I'm working on at the moment is the use of interactive television technologies to help people to go out with a mobile phone camera or any digital camera they've got and make films by making short snippets of film of things that they're interested in, and then producing installations for museums, perhaps visitor centres, or even that can be experienced out in the landscape, but interactive video. So you can choose how your story unfolds as you watch it. So this might be a case of a uh, uh, something on a a mobile phone where you're watching a uh, short film about a landscape while you're sat down on a bench looking at the landscape and you can kind of choose which bits of it interest you the most and you can choose what to focus on and, and things like that so presumably being in the west of Scotland you're not going to spend very long sat on a bench in the rain doing this but if you're in a uh, in a visitor centre or you're at home are really interested in people being able to capture this material because making short snippets of film isn't very hard, then assemble this material into an interactive film. And then the user, then the viewer can watch that film, but they can choose their own pathway through that film, depending on what their interests are. And as a first experiment with this kind of interactive film, interactive TV technology, 
I'm designing an installation at the moment with a PhD student, Elizabeth Robertson from Archaeology, where we are uh, designing a physical installation at the University of Glasgow, which will allow people to control interactive film projected onto the walls of the room, but also control the sound as well, and also have the opportunity to interact with real archaeological objects and material which are within that space as well. So it'll be a fully immersive experience in the sense that you'll be immersed within this room, you'll be able to touch things, you'll be able to pick them up and look at them, Uh, you'll be able to alter the way the room sounds, you'll be able to alter what you're looking at on the walls and you'll be able to control all of these things so it's taking I suppose that trajectory from the DNR project of getting increasingly interested in buildings and objects and and things and landscapes all this physical stuff and sort of saying well that's already very immersive so how much digital technology do you need in order to turn this into an immersive kind of uh, augmented reality experience these things are uh, uh, huge assets there so this will be an immersive experience but uh, built using a whole range of analog technologies as well and it's going to be based around an early stages research collaboration that we've been working on with the National Trust for Scotland up at Glencoe if people want to see a sort of sneak preview of what some of this might like look like there's a uh, a film which we've been working on on my uh, blog the film is called Achtrechten. this has been absolutely fascinating to hear about gareth honestly obviously you're talking about this being experimental so it's quite difficult to predict where things are going to go next how do you think that having access to all these technologies is going to change things in the future within the field well i think ever since circling back to something i said right at the beginning we've been using 3D computer graphics. It's only one tiny part of uh, digital archaeology, but we've been using 3D computer graphics since the late 1980s. And at that point, there was very little digital technology used within archaeology, compared to now anyway. And I think what's happened in the intervening time is that the range of digital technologies available to us has just exploded. And that can be a good thing, but it can be overwhelming. And I think the worst thing for researchers in any field is to get excited about technology and just blindly go off and I have to do a VR project because it's exciting and I want to try it out and I think that's a that's a bad research question because certainly for me I'm an archaeologist so um my research should always have to do with that and so I hope what happens speaking from an archaeological perspective because that's my specialism is that we take our time and that we look at all of this technology that's available and we keep being creative and we keep being critical and we keep thinking about different ways to use this and we need to think about why we're doing this who we're doing this for and for me that's about making sure that people have meaningful exciting experiences of the past experiences of archaeological material which help to inspire them in their lives from there on regardless of whether these people go into archaeology i think everyone experiences archaeology every day of their lives you you will walk past something which is of great archaeological interest especially in the uk every 10 minutes if you're in a lesson i mean every every minute or two if you're walking around a city in britain you will walk past of some past something that is of archaeological interest this archaeology informs everyone's life and and if you're able to interact with it if you're able to understand it if you're able to 
emotionally engage with it, it improves your life. And I think that what I want to do with this technology is make sure that the greatest possible number of people have these kinds of meaningful experiences of archaeology and that they're able to take ownership over the world in which they live as a result. And so and so in terms of technology, I don't have any technological aspirations other than that I hope as archaeologists and as a community, we continue to think creatively about how we're using this technology, but always think about why we're using it and whether it's the right solution for the people that we're supposed to be serving, really. How has being involved in the DNA project and working within this space, how's that impacted your practices? It's taken me down a slightly different route, I suppose. And when I started the project, I considered myself as someone who um, specialised in archaeological computer graphics. And what this research taught me is that actually <laughs> there will always be someone better. Firstly, there'll always be someone better at archaeological computer graphics than you because I'm an archaeologist, not a uh, <laughs> 3D artist by training. But that's okay because, as we talked about before, this is a collaborative endeavour and it should be for that reason. So the thing as an archaeologist that I'm really interested in now is how we tell stories about the past and what kinds of stories these technologies allow us to tell. So what do these stories look like? What form do they take? Do, are, are these um, more like films? Are they more like computer games? Are they more like going to the theatre? Are they more like being told a story by a really great storyteller while you're stood within a landscape? And um, how can they be like those things? But how can they also build on those to become something unique and something different? So it's become much more, I I feel like my practice as an archaeologist, I'd say my specialism as an archaeologist or my just what I do has become much more akin to someone producing a piece of theatre than it has someone who is an archaeological illustrator. So my role as an archaeologist has, has changed. And that has been triggered by the technology, I suppose, but only in the sense that I've become aware through using this technology that it's necessary to work in a collaborative way. And if you're working in a collaborative way, there are an awful lot of moving parts to think about. And successfully delivering a project like that requires you to begin to think about how to manage all of these different components and ultimately deliver something complete and whole that people enjoy. And that's thrilling. I'm very excited about that. And it's it's an exciting direction to go in. And I think it's also given me more of a sense of ownership. I think there was always a tendency when I was working within archaeological computer graphics to sort of feel like I was working within this tradition of archaeological illustration. And sort of that can be exciting because I love archaeological illustration, but also comes with constraint. And and you're sort of taught to do things in certain ways. Whereas I think working with these kinds of new technologies where you're sort of taking what you do to audiences in new ways, it requires you to think much more creatively. And I think uh, through working with colleagues, from learning from them, from learning from members of the public, from learning from all the, the teachers and designers and artists and people who participated in the collaboration of these experiences, I've become much more creative myself. And so I think that these uh, technologies indirectly have made me more creative in the way that I do archaeology. But I when I'm talking about the technologies, really, I'm talking about the community that came with my use of the technologies. So it's uh, brought together a great group of people, a great community. And really, that's the uh, the thing about the technology that I find most exciting. I think what really shines through a lot of this is the idea of community and collaboration. Are there any communities that you'd like to collaborate with on installations and immersive experiences in the future? 
one thing I'd really like to do in the future would be to do some of this research closer to home. So all of the projects that I've done so far have been in Yorkshire and Scotland, and that's because that's where I've been based in those communities that I've been based within. But my sort of passion during all of this period archaeologically speaking and in terms of history has been for Cornwall which is where I come from and so I'd really like to go back and try to apply some of these approaches to a landscape in a community that I really know so it's been great to be involved in these projects because not only has it been wonderful research to be involved with it's also been a brilliant way to become part of the community within which you're based because you're conducting the research in the community in the museums and schools and village halls what have you where uh, the research is uh, actually taking place and that's been brilliant from my perspective and yes a great way into these communities but it's a strange perspective in some respects to be always an outsider in those contexts and so I'd really like to conduct this kind of research in a in a landscape that I know very well and a community and a sort of culture that I know very well so I think that would be uh, my dream yes to go back to Cornwall and uh, do something like this perhaps on industrial archaeology or something like that. As an archaeologist, I'm more interested, I have to say, in the uh, later, later periods, and certainly within the context of Cornwall, I think it's the uh, 18th and 19th century industrial landscapes, which interest me the most, because I, uh, I grew up in and around these and always found them fascinating. It was very difficult in some respects. I grew up after a lot of this industry had disappeared to understand what had actually happened there. And so I think uh, this is a story one day that I would love to tell so that people who visited Cornwall, people perhaps, but also certainly, more importantly, I think people who live there can understand what an important role this industry played in people's lives. So I'd love to get involved in, in that a bit more. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks very much to Gareth for joining us on the podcast today. If you're interested in checking out some of Gareth's work and finding out more about the projects that we've mentioned today, you can find details, including links to Gareth's YouTube channel in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts, as well as find out about new episodes of the podcast by following us on social media at U of G Arts or by visiting www gla.ac.uk forward slash arts This episode was produced by Sia Jackson Music is Notion by Coma Media See you next time <laughs>